G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth2letteru.org. I'm John and joining me all the way from Louisiana is my very good friend and co-host of the Tanakh Tour, author of the Moses Scroll, Ross Nichols. Hey Jono, how are you my friend? My head is, you know, my head is swimming with information. <laughs> Absolutely swimming with information. And I'll tell you something, um, yep. and I know you know this is true, I have learned so much in the last half year, not just about the, the Moses Scroll and your book, uh, and, and for people listening, if you haven't been there already, themosesscroll.com, go there, get all the information. But yep. it, it's it's not just your book, and it's not just the document that you and I believe to be a, can I say, a proto-Deuteronomy, um, yep. an, an original and authentic uh, copy ancient, of, of, of yep. an ancient mosaic document. Um but I have learnt an enormous amount about the five books at the beginning of our Tanakhs that I had not known previously. I mean, a huge amount, and uh, and and I can't tell you how how my views have changed um, in regards to this new information that I have. And uh, and I would recommend to any. Bible student, any fan of your uh, of, of the Bible, and I know the truth to your listeners are, uh, you really want to learn some stuff, dive into this material, because regardless of whether you think, like, like Ross and myself and many other scholars, that um, this is an authentic, genuine document or not, you're still yeah. going to learn an enormous amount about the book that you've dedicated so much of your life to. Ross, yeah, let, let me say I, I concur with that. Jono, you, you and I are both very, very blessed in this sense. We have people who listen to what we, we're saying week by week. Uh, I have it with uh, the United Israel folks as well. I, I say this all the time to, to my friends at United Israel. When, when I teach a class, I'm, in effect, I'm teaching teachers, Jonah, we're talking to an audience which is, has been in the text for many of these people, probably longer than you and I. So, so I, I, I am very blessed and, and I would agree with everything that you just said there. I have learned a lot over the last uh, six months as well. And I continue to do so. And, and it's, it's all I want to do. It's all I want to talk about. It's all I want to study. And I'm just uh, fortunate to have a good friend like you that I can get online with and do this every week. So, hey, you want <laughs> well, you want to get into some fun stuff it's, tonight, Jonah? It's less it's less fortunate for you though because your your Hebrew is much better than mine. And I'll just tell the listeners I'm constantly bugging Ross for information uh, in regards to this learning curve. But he's very very generous with his time, and uh, and I appreciate you, my friend. I'm just going to say that right now. Um, I do want to get into some fun stuff. Before we get into, into some fun stuff, um, we're getting into a particular uh, time of the year, and it's a significant time of the year in regards to the Shapira saga. Uh, we're in the middle of May almost. What what happened uh, at this time in, I think it was in 83. Is that is that about right? That's right. That's right. Very, very key time. But but look, even before, now that's the fun stuff I was talking about, Jonah, but I have an announcement for friends in Australia. Ooh, go on. Now, I, I didn't even tell you this. So I get an email this morning from Kindle Direct Publishing, customer support. This uh -huh. is the group, uh, obviously, on Amazon through which the Moses Scroll has been published. And uh, it says, hello, we're excited to announce paperback printing will begin launching in Australia on May the 19th. This will enable faster delivery of your book to you and your readers. And it goes on. So I just wanted to say uh, that uh, listeners in Australia, and I know several, uh, that if they decide to order the book and they haven't ordered the book or if they want to order another copy for a friend or family member, it looks like uh, after May 19th, it's going to be a little bit smoother process. I think it took a little while for you to get yours. Yeah, but, uh, but evidently it it's that because long, but it's going to be faster. Wow. I'm, I'm liking evidently, it. Evidently. Okay. So, so that's happening in May. But let's go back, Jono, because I, I have been in this story for approaching two years now. And so you know this. Some of the listeners may not. In my bag, I carry 
some calendars from the 19th century because I'm always putting things together mm-hmm. and I'm saying, wait a minute, what day was that on the Jewish calendar, for instance? What was the Torah reading that week? You know, and I'm making these different connections. What just so happens, and this corresponds with a blog post that I just put up, uh, I put it up today, actually, a little bit early, uh, called Moses Shapira's 9 May 1883 letter to Herman Strzok. Now, people oh, yeah. that are listening might say, well, that doesn't sound like a very sexy title. Fascinating. I mean, you know, it's fascinating. <laughs> but this, this happens to be, Jono, a piece of the puzzle uh, that sort of opens up this drastic, fast-paced final year of Moses Shapira's life. And mm. so I wanted to, if, if you'll allow me, I wanted to tell a little bit about what happened that led to this incredible Please. story that's occupied so much of our time. So just for a brief recap, Moses Shapira in 1878 is already a very well-known purveyor of authentic old manuscripts. And you and I are working on a joint article, which hopefully will be published soon, on the blog about Moses Shapira's great contributions to not only the British Museum, but to the Berlin Museum and other museums uh, around the, the world at the time, uh, these manuscripts, he would go get these manuscripts and he would bring them and sell them. And, and we're talking about some of the greatest manuscripts now in museums, some some works of Maimonides mm. and, and just incredible things. So in 1878, uh, these Bedouin come to Moses Shapira's shop and they tell him about this interesting a manuscript that was discovered in Moab across the Jordan about 1865. He's interested. He acquires these leather strips. He immediately begins to think because, see, he knows manuscripts, and he begins to think that this is quite possibly the oldest biblical manuscript in the world. He, He sees no signs of forgery. And again, his eyes are trained for this kind of stuff. What he does then is he decides to seek the advice of other scholars. We're in 1878. So he acquires 16 leather strips from the Bedouin in uh, 1878 through the month of August. He spends about five weeks going through Mm. this manuscript, which is written in Paleo-Hebrew, There, there are, by the way, no line breaks, uh, no word breaks. The, it's a continuous uh, script. It's a Go fascinating ahead. thing. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say that uh, in this um, article that you have posted on your blog. So, by the way, dear listeners, if you go to themosescroll.com and just click on author's blog and you'll see Ross's latest uh, article there in this regard. And in this case, it is a, uh, a letter between uh, Shapira and Strzok. And he's saying, he's saying, man, I... I worked on this for for four or five weeks, and it really hurt my eyes. I mean, it's difficult yeah. to read. It's all, you know, there's no breaks. I, I, I have to apply a, a particular um, solution to it to reveal the letters before they fade away, and I have to try and read it. And it, it, it he mentions on a number of occasions, it is really hurting my eyes, and I need to bring it to some professionals. Excellent point. And, and so just to kind of underscore that, Jono, uh, again – uh, our listeners, those who read Hebrew, we're used to opening up a Tanakh, a nice, crisp, mm. easy to read, and you can work through. You you have the vowel points. This is written on old, dirty leather. Uh, first of all, it's blackened with age. Uh, there are no breaks between the words. The letters are something which are foreign to uh, readers of Hebrew because it's the Paleo Hebrew. Mm. But but he he works through this pain you know painfully as you said. Mm. Not only does he have to wet this uh, scroll, it's only a certain amount of time uh, during which he can see and make out the letters in some places. So you remember in this letter, and we'll give people the link to this in this blog po- in this uh, mm. episode. But it, he says that as when you first wet it, you can almost see it as it begins to dry. The luster 
from the wetness on the ancient ink makes it where you can see it. But when it once it gets dry again, you can't see it again. It's it's very, very painful on his eyes. Mm. But over a period of about five weeks, he completes a transcription of this document. He learns some things. He realizes that in his view, this appears to be two copies of the same manuscript, and he believes that it's some form, it resembles closely the Bible's book of Deuteronomy for the most part. But it has variations, considerable variations, and it includes text from other books of the Pentateuch. So at times you're reading along in what would correspond roughly with, say, Deuteronomy 9, and then all of a sudden you're thrown into the book of Numbers, right? Mm. So it's, it's uh, anyway, it's not exact, but he, he puts a transcription together. In other words, he's taking the paleo, he is assigning the word breaks. So he realizes, okay, this is the first word, and he writes that in modern Hebrew, or what we call Aramaic script, Mm-hmm. And he puts this thing together. He decides that he's going to uh, enlist the help of a professor at Halle University by the name of Constantine Schlotman. Schlotman is a brilliant scholar. So Shapira sits down and he sends a letter to Constantine Schlotman and he mails the letter on 24 September 1878. And he says, hey, I want you to check this out. He tells him a little bit about his findings, uh, you know, and and, kind of gives him a heads up about what's coming his way. Well, it doesn't take but a couple of weeks uh, sometime in October, and I don't have the exact date in front of me. He gets a reply back from Constantine Schlotman, and Schlotman is upset. Mm. Schlotman says... How dare you, Shapira, consider this to be an authentic document? It is clearly a forgery. Now, guess what his reason is, Jono? His reason is... How dare you suggest that there is something more original than that, which is undoubtedly our our proven true uh, Bible? How how dare you even suggest that it's different? Yep. And, And look, there are listeners to this program who may say, well, I agree with Schlotman. Uh, because initially, I think you and I, if we back up more than a year or so ago, I think that would be my stand is, hey, look, we've got the Torah. Uh, we have Genesis through Deuteronomy, Genesis 1-1 through Deuteronomy 34-12. This is the Torah mm. that uh, that Moses wrote. And so this yeah. is Constantine Schlotman's stand. This is, this is, this is where he's coming from. But, but uh, I, you know, I've thought about this, and if I can just go down a rabbit trail just for a second. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing, the interesting thing about truth to you listeners is that they are willing and almost expect to be put in an uneasy position with information, and I think they respect mm-hmm. that about truth to you. People that listen to truth to you, a, a lot of the listeners are actually post-Christian. Uh, a lot of them yep. are Christian. A lot of them are Jewish, but a lot of them are post-Christian. That is to say that at at some stage along the line, truth to you challenged them and said, look, here are some problems with the New Testament. You've got to understand uh, it's quoting from the Tanakh. Let's just go back to the Tanakh and put it in its context, and let's right. consider. And so and so, truth to you listeners that are still listening, uh, they w- allowed themselves to be put in a, a position that challenged their comfort zone, and yep. they thought, okay, you know, no one's watching. Uh, I'm at home in front of my computer. At least let me read the document in the context that it was originally, you know, this, that, and the other, mm-hmm. and then let yep. me let me now that you've brought it to my attention, I'll evaluate the information and come to an informed decision. This is what we're doing. We're doing the same thing, and 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 this is evidently what, uh, maybe unbeknownst to Shapira at the time, he was doing to Schlotman with a transcription of uh, of the Moses Scroll, Ross, and and Jono to add to that. Shapira was doing this to Shapira because mm, Shapira right. is uh, a man of faith. I mean, he. So one of the things that I want to do is sort of as a uh, just just kind of a heads up going into this program and the, the subsequent programs that you and I would do. I would like to make this statement. What this has done to my faith is enhanced it, Jono. This 
This has not, because some people are concerned. They might say, you're challenging the traditional views, and therefore, uh, I'm a little bit, you know, leery. I don't Mm -hmm. know that I want to listen to this, but if people will persevere and they'll listen, you and I would both agree. We want people to challenge these programs and think Mm -hmm. about it. Go and look for yourself. So Shapira is challenged by what he reads. And Shapira sends it to Schlopman, who is challenged by what he reads. And he sends back a note and says, I'm not going there. Your version of the Ten Commandments, this is one of Constantine Schlopman's complaints, uh, does not agree with what's in the Bible. And therefore, ergo, it's wrong. Now, what I want to bring up just quickly and then move on is that we have two accounts of the Ten Commandments in the Bible, uh, one in Exodus 20, one in Deuteronomy 5, and they have differences between them. So what I would have challenged uh, Schlotman at the time with is, well, which version are you saying is the genuine, authentic version? Because they don't even match. And I mean, having said that, I mean, you and I were just talking um, uh, earlier that there's not just two, actually, there's probably four or five versions (laughs) of the Ten Commandments. That's 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 another, that's a conversation in and of itself. And we Mm -hmm. may return and make that a program, but it's fascinating. I'm writing it down right now because I think you've got a good point. Okay. So Schlotman sends a letter back. Now, remember, Shapira is a man of fate and Shapira gets this letter and he feels badly. You know, he says, you know... Now I've been uh, chided uh, by Schlotman over, you know, challenging the authorized Bible. And he says, we have record of him saying this. In fact, it's in the letter that I'm going to get to in a moment. He actually says, you know, whenever Schlotman wrote me back, I I tottered in my uh, decision. In other words, he began to say, maybe this thing is forged. And he even begins to think if it's forged, who could have done this? I mean, it's who and why, such yeah. a good, yeah, who, A, who could do it? It's so well put together. Secondly, it looks so real. And then, you know, all of these things came up. So he even uh, kind of pencils out one guy that he thought might, maybe this guy, Dr. Landsberg did it. Mm. He hates me. He put this thing in my path and, and. So so what Shapira does is he says, you know what, I'm going to put this away. So he takes the 16 leather strips that he had put so much faith in, so much work in, Jono, and he takes them to the Bergheim Bank in the old city. Now, the Bergheim Bank uh, was the bank in Jerusalem at the time, and he's friends with the father and the two sons who run the Bergheim Bank. And he says, listen, put this in a, a safety deposit box. You know, like you would put gold or other valuables Mm -hmm. in. In fact, the German that I've I've worked on with a translation funded by the Tylers actually says it's a box for gold. Yeah. So he he pays the money. He pays the money and he has that. Now, the thing that I think I've mentioned this uh, before in in previous programs, but I'm just going to say it again. That speaks volumes to me because Shapira is known for handling multiple manuscripts, very, very old and valuable antiques. And he has his own shop. And uh, in the old city of Jerusalem, undoubtedly has a uh, a safe in that shop and uh, and keeps a whole lot of you know very important documents and valuable documents and and antiques there. Locks them up in his shop every night. This, however, mm-hmm. he decides to put in a, uh, a a safety deposit box, so to speak. Puts it in the safe in uh, in a Jerusalem bank vault, um, which says to me, while he may be a little bit. Um, uh, he, he says he's he says he's irresolute, Jonah. Irresolute. But, but, so if he's irresolute, yeah, no. but he's still going. Uh, but you know what? If this is a if this is the real deal, this is a very very important and 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 valuable document. Yep, that's right. So so he he still I think like you just said I think he thinks okay well one scholar shot it down and you know I'm feeling kind of badly about it. he says he gave several reasons why he thought it was a forgery Shapira said those reasons didn't convince him he said what made him put it away was he just felt badly because it contradicted the Masoretic text of the mm. Bible and he said you know what 
I'm going to put it up, but I'm going to pay money to keep it in a safe. And he does that. So he leaves it in the safe. Now, this is October of 1878. And he continues with his business. We have records, Jonah, of him going to the Yemen. He goes to Egypt. He goes all over the Mediterranean world. And he finds and purchases and then sells valuable, valuable manuscripts. It's what he loves to do. He loves adventure. He's less in love with his day-to-day job of sitting in the shop selling little trinkets at the souvenir shop on Christian Street. Right. Yeah, he, you know, uh, uh, he, he wants to be Indiana Jones, is what he wants to be. And I mean, I mean, he, he is really in, in many respects. Yeah, and he, he says he calls himself the king of the desert. Nothing makes him happier than saddling up on his white mare and taking off across the country in search of valuable antiquities. So, mm. so this is what he does he puts it up, he goes about his regular business, and he makes money. I mean, he's selling things back and forth to the British Museum and so forth. Mm. Well, then something happens, Jono, that makes him go back to the Bergheim boys and say, I need that manuscript out. And here's what it is. Now, you know what it is, but but here's what happens. Sometime in 1883, in the early part of the year, he comes across a book. Uh, the book is written in German. A lot of people need to know this. Uh, first of all, Shapira knows English. He knows Hebrew. He knows Arabic. He knows German. He knows French. You know, he, he's really talented at mm. languages. Um, and, and so he reads this book. At the time, it was only put out in German. A scholar by the name of Friedrich Bleek uh, wrote this book. The translation of the title is Introduction to the Old Testament. Friedrich Bleek published in Berlin in 1860 the um, basically the crowning achievement of his academic career. And what he has in there, which we can go into more detail in a little bit, mm. um, he begins to chronicle and document what 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 are called the critical scholars of the text of the Bible have come to believe in 1860. And, and I'm going to tell you, sometimes people get nervous when you say the critical scholars. Critical scholars, we think of criticism uh, in a different way. Critical scholars are taking a very hard look at the text, and they're looking for what we might call discrepancies or variations within the story or the context or even the language of the Bible. Hmm. I often tell people who listen to me, you can read, let's take the Pentateuch, you can read the five books attributed to Moses from Genesis through Deuteronomy, and you might not notice difficulties or are challenging things. Mm. But if you, and I call that reading vertically, you start at the top and you read Genesis 1-1 all the way through chapter 50, and then you pick up in Exodus and you read it all the way through, vertical reading. A critical scholar will look at the Bible, what I would call horizontally, meaning if we have an account of the giving of the 10 words in Exodus 20, let's put Exodus 20 side by side with Deuteronomy 5, which gives another account of the 10 words, and let's see, do they match up? Now, you brought up an excellent point about many of your listeners that many of these people did this from the Christian standpoint. That's right. How many people have taken Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and looked at them side by side, and you go, wait a minute, and I'm making this up because it's been too long for me to give you an exact one. But mm. let's say Mark says he has on a purple robe, and, and uh, Luke says he has on a red robe, and people go, ah, we've got a difficulty here. We have a problem. Well, the ancient rab, the early rabbis, uh, I guess you could say ancient, uh, but biblical scholars have been doing this since the Talmud. They've been looking at variations within the text and trying to come up with answers on it. So I say all that to say Shapira reads Bleak's work that was published in 1860, and he says this. He said, 
what a change came over my mind. He said, I, and I'm paraphrasing Mr. Shapira, but he says, I came to understand that the scholars had come to believe that the Pentateuch uh, was not written in its entirety by Moses, nor about his time. Hmm. Now, that's that's a mouthful there. That that makes people a little uneasy. But let me give you an example. Um, if, if sometimes we're reading in the Bible and it will say something, but it will refer to something using what uh, is defined as anachronism. Anachronism is when you say something in a text which does not fit the contemporaries. So, so for instance, if if you're reading along and it says but at that time it was called such and such or in genesis chapter 12 is an excellent example in genesis chapter 12 verse 6 it says that the canaanites were then in the land mm-hmm. all right let me focus on that one just for a second to make this point we know that during the lifetime of moses the canaanites were always in the land mm-hmm. you follow mm-hmm. in other words they Moses dies before the children of Israel cross into the promised land. Therefore, the Canaanites were in the land past the lifetime of Moses. Hmm. So whoever wrote Genesis chapter 12, verse 6, clearly wasn't Moses. Mm -hmm. And there are other examples, a lot of other examples. So Shapira is introduced to this in a document by Bleak called Introduction to the Old Testament. Now, if people go to look for this online, uh, it's going to be difficult because it was originally published in uh, German. The English version I do have and you have, Mm -hmm. uh, it was published, the English translation translation of the 1860 work was published in 1869. And uh, by the way, by that point, Bleak, had already died. Shapiro reads this book, Jono, and he says, wow, a change comes over his mind. And you know what he begins to think about is that document that he has in the bank vault at Bergheim Brothers Bank right. in the old city. Now, so he takes it short. Go ahead. He, he decides to take it. So, well, let me just break there for a second because uh, when you first told me this many, many months ago, um, that the reason why he got it out of the bank was because he read a book by Bleak, uh, 1860 is when it was published, as you say. And he's reading it now, oh, over 20 years after it was published, uh, having mm-hmm. just um, uh, made its way into his hands. And it made us wonder what exactly about Bleak um, m- changed his mind. We're going to have to read that book because – uh, playing devil's advocate, I thought to myself, and I and I vocalized to you, what if Shapira is the forger, or what if someone uh, working with Shapira is a forger, and they say to themselves, you know, there's this book by Bleak, uh, we could just use this book as a textbook, if you like, to produce yep. something that has no um, uh, difficulties within and, uh, you know, put it in paleo and da-da-da-da-da. And so it was necessary for, for you, and, and, and I really wanted to read it too, to, to read it, which is why we did exactly that. Um, and we, and, and it, it became very obvious to us uh, uh, fairly quickly that Bleak's book was not a textbook to produce a forgery by, in any right. way. Uh, but there was a reason. There was a very particular reason as to why it served to change Shapira's mind and get it out of the bank vault. What was that? Well, I tell you, it, it was the first thing was when he first looked at the manuscript in 1878 and he made his transcription, he noticed that it contained variations from the canonical text, from the Masoretic text, and he knew that these were problematic. In other words, uh, there were several things. One example I'll throw out there is that if you look at the, the current book of Deuteronomy, which, by the way, all scholars believe, uh, critical scholars today, for the most part, believe that chapter 12 through 26 is uh, the earliest part of mm. the book of Deuteronomy. 
Um, but here's an interesting thing. That's typically referred to in scholarly circles, chapter 12 through 26, as the legal corpus or the law code of Deuteronomy. Uh, if you're reading, we talked about this on a previous program, if you're reading chapter 11, you know, it sort of wraps up with when you cross into the land, you're going to put people on Gerizim and Eval and do the blessing and the curses. Then you have 12 through 26, which is all about all these laws and centralized worship. And chapter 17 deals with the king. Chapter 18 deals with the form of government. Chapter mm. 20, and I'm just highlighting chapter 20 is the the code that deals with warfare. And then, you know, you work your way through. Then when you get to 27, it picks right back up with the uh, mm-hmm. blessings and the curses. That, well, not, well, not the blessings. <laughs> it that's right. That's somewhere right. in between the, the, the blessings, yeah, and we've yeah. done a program on that. Somewhere yeah, somewhere right, in right. this uh, uh, sewing the law code into the body of Deuteronomy, the, the blessings just um, fell by the wayside. But it does pick up with the curses and then the consequences of the curses and the consequences of the blessings. Ross. Yep, and so he notices a couple of things that the scholars have noted, and that is that um, this book, now it does have an introductory phrase and a closing form uh, on this book, which uses the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, mm-hmm. Jehovah or Yahweh, however you, you are, Yahuwah, as some people say, but it only has that in the opening and closing lines, which Shapira immediately recognizes, and most scholars today would say the same, as a later scribal edition. But the body of the work, from the beginning of the document, once you get past that opening introductory sentence, mm. all the way to the final, right before the closing, it uses exclusively, exclusively. Elohim instead of uh, Jehovah, where you would expect to see the divine mm. name. A classic example, and and I hate to keep saying go to the blog, but uh, I wrote a, an article called The Shema and the Shapira mm-hmm. Manuscript, a linguistic look for English readers. The Shema, most people know the Shema. Shema Yisrael, this is the way it's said today in prayers and liturgy. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Um, notice that I didn't say the divine name, but that I would, as uh, a practicing person would say, a Jewish person, they would substitute the divine name for the uh, the term Adonai. In Shapira's manuscript, it says, Shema Yisrael, Elohim Elohecha, Elohim Echad. Mm-hmm. It substitutes. So he thought that this was interesting because one thing that scholars had noted, and Bleak brings this up, is that there is a strand of the Bible which contains, um, uh, instead of the divine name, it uses Elohim consistently. Hmm. So it's an Elohist document. It's an Elohist document. Now, our readers have probably come across this, but one, one thing to consider... Uh, forget scholars for a minute. Let's just talk to good Bible students. If you look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, do you have your Bible handy, Jonah? Exodus. This is one of the things that caught uh, Shapira's eye, and it's mentioned in modern academia as well as uh, bleak. Look mm-hmm. at Exodus 6, 2 for us. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared, now I've got that obviously in capitals, Lord, so that's Jehovah. I am Jehovah. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but I did not make myself known to them by my name. And then we have the Tetragrammaton. Uh, That's interesting. So this is, you know, I hadn't noticed that before, but obviously you and I are using uh, the Jewish study Bible quite a lot. And here they've chosen to put in the Hebrew Tetragrammaton. Uh, I did see that. Mm-hmm. I noticed that before. Um, go ahead. Yep. Yeah. So, so the interesting thing I want people to think about this: we Moses encounters God in Exodus chapter three for the first time, and people are very familiar with this passage. It's the story of the bush, Jono. He's tending his father-in-law's flock uh, at, on the far side of the wilderness. He he's around Horeb, and he sees the bush that's on fire. And he in this encounter, God tells him. Uh, this is my name. So between Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 6, we get this interesting story where the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appears to Moses, and he tells him, 
look, the the fathers didn't know me by my name Yod Hey Vav Hey, but by my name El Shaddai. Now we do have stories. Genesis 17 comes to mind, where God says He's speaking to Abram and in uh, Abraham by this point, and He says, "I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be perfect," and so forth. So I want you to think about something. Moses says between Exodus 3 and chapter 6, I'm looking at two stories at once in my mind. He says, when I go to the children of Israel and I say, look, the God of your fathers has met with me. And uh, they're going to ask me, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, this really happened. What's his name? And Moses says, they're going to ask me, what should I tell them? And he says, my name is Ahie Asheri. You know the story in mm-hmm. Exodus 3. Here's what I want you to consider. If the fathers didn't know him by his name yod vav and the children of Israel have been in the land of Egypt since the days of the father, what name do you think the slaves in Egypt, the, children, the Hebrews, what name do you think they know? So if Moses goes back to them, and he says, the God of your fathers has met with me. And they say, oh, yeah, Moses, what's his name? And he says, his name is yod vav I imagine that that group of people would say, ah, not ringing a bell. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't follow what you're saying, Moses. Mm. You know, so he's given a name that they don't know. And what this does is it causes a conundrum. It causes us to question things because as early as Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we get an occurrence of the name. Now, interestingly enough, the Bible begins in Genesis 1.1, Bereshi, Barai, Lochim, et Hashemayim, Ve'et Arts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but it uses Elohim. Mm. It uses Elohim consistently up until Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, And then if you get to Genesis 4, it says, then men begin to call upon the name Jehovah. But it creates this difficulty, a tension in the text, because we have some text before Exodus chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, where the name is clearly used. Now, some people say, well, you know, the name um, was forgotten. That's not what Exodus chapter 6, verse 2 says. So one of the things that we have to address in these future programs is what's going on with the text? Now, I propose what other scholars have proposed before me way back. I'm talking uh, more than a thousand years have said that, you know, it's interesting that we have this. Uh, Clearly, what we're seeing is different authors, or we're seeing anachronism where someone would put the name in a text which Mm. perhaps originally used Elohim. Elohim. Now, one of the investigators at the time in 1883, when he saw, his name is Neubauer, uh, this scholar, brilliant scholar of the day, 19th century linguist and and, uh, and Semitic scholar, mm. he says this is the most brilliant part of the manuscript. Now, he thinks it's a forgery. Get this. But he, he never saw it. He just was reading transcriptions that were being published in the papers of the day. But what he says is this is pretty good. This guy wants us to believe that it's an earlier document because it uses Elohim and not yod vav mm. So that's one thing, and I, I know I went through that kind of quickly, but it's something I want people to consider. Again, the other things that are missing, chapter 12 through 26, are filled with things which create tension in the text. It, uh, here's another example. We've done a program on this, but just to touch it. Uh, in First Samuel chapter eight, when the people asked for a king, sure. Samuel is surprised. Remember, you know. Mm. So, so how is it that if this were part of the Torah that were known, Deuteronomy seventeen verse fourteen through twenty clearly says, when you go into the land, you're going to ask for a king like the nations, and you can put a king over you. He's got to be one of your own people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. But when this happens, Samuel doesn't seem to know anything about it. And then he goes to God, who also says, they didn't reject you, they rejected me. 
Nowhere in the story does someone raise their hand and say, uh, excuse me, Hang on you a said when we go it's, into the land. Yeah, it's right here. It's written this. right here in the scroll. What? Haven't you? Mm-hmm. No, one, no one claims <laughs> that at all. That's right. So, so we do have these difficulties. Now, here's something else that's interesting, is that the geography in Deuteronomy, in the opening portions of Deuteronomy, lays out a, uh, a travel itinerary, if you will, of the tribes. It says, you know, we crossed here, we did this, and we did there, and we went there. What we, what we now know without any argument, well, it could be arguments, but not well-founded arguments, is that the geography of our current book of Deuteronomy is confused, Jono. If you look at a map, and this is not just a matter of modern readers not being familiar with the lay of the land, this has been recognized uh, throughout the ages as some difficulty. And many people answer it by saying, well, you know, maybe the chronology is off or whatever. Well, this scroll doesn't, the Moses scroll does not have a confused chronology. In, in terms of the geography, the path of the children of Israel it makes perfect sense. You go here, then here, then here. And, uh, and that's one of the other things that Shapira notices. So Shapira basically recognizes, and we're going to have to do another program or many programs to get into the, the, the details of, of academic approach to scholarship. But what happens is, He's just read Bleak. He goes back to the bank. He gets the document out and he goes, it's just as I remembered it. The things that are questioned, the things that are problematic in the Masoretic text Mm. are not a problem here. That's it. This text doesn't have the difficulties. It has everything in, in, uh, in working order, if you might. And so I I think that what we ought to begin doing is going through some of these more difficult things that and and showing this the uh, the answer to it uh, as as the Moses scroll puts it. So uh, just to so there's a couple of things that I just wanted to touch on. Um, Oh yeah. uh, Just going back for a second uh, because you mentioned the Shema Shema Yisrael. Yehovah Eloheinu Yehovah Echad is the way that it reads in the Hebrew. The fascinating mm-hmm. thing about the Moses scroll is that it's Shema Yisrael Elohim, Elohim Eloheinu Elohim Echad. There's a great yep. deal of significance and it changes what's being said because Elohim, of course, is a plural. Uh, and yet the emphasis here is that Elohim is one. Um, yeah. I'm going to let uh, people think about that and uh, dwell on that for a while. And we may do a program on that further down the line. The other thing that I just wanted to mention is that uh, Bleak uh, does make assertions. I mean, I recommend if people get hold of this um, to give it a good read uh, because there's some fascinating things that he points out that scholars scholars knew back in the 1800s. Fascinating things. But he he points out what he believes to be absolutely original. He thinks, well, this must have been in it and this must have been in it uh, that do not appear in the Moses Scroll. And yet uh, some of the problematic uh, sections of or conflicting sections of of the Torah that he points out, as you point out, Moses Shapiro sees that they're not in the Moses scroll. So one one thing that I remember reading, uh, and I made a note here, and this is uh, Bleak saying, it seems highly probable, highly probable to me, that the original narrative consisted of the following portions. And he's talking about the book of Numbers. He's talking about chapter 13, but the remainder of chapter 14 was not added until afterwards, uh, revised or enlarged. Uh, However, uh, the Moses scroll uh, does appear in Numbers chapter 14, 30. That is to say that if the Moses scroll is what we believe it to be, Numbers chapter 14, verse 30 borrows from the Moses scroll and it appears there. Thus, if Shapira used Bleak as a textbook to produce a forgery, why would he go against Bleak's highly probable conclusion yep. of originality? And that uh, that occurs uh, on multiple occasions. So clearly, he uh, this was not being excellent, relied upon. 
Excellent point. If he were to use bleak as a template, as some have maybe supposed, like like you said, when you first called me, I said, you know, it's a good question. What if he got a hold of it in 1860 and said, you know what, I'm going to make a fake scroll and I'm going to make it abide by what the scholars have supposed that the text actually said. Well, he fouled up because he doesn't align with. He doesn't at all. Uh, now, I, I, I want to touch on a couple of things since you brought it up. For people who may think, oh, I don't know, these boys have lost it. Here's a question <laughs> for you. You mentioned Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13 is mm. the story of the spies, right? Mm. So you get the story of the spies. You also get the story in Deuteronomy 1. Remember how I talked about reading horizontally. If you look at Numbers 13 and compare the story of the spies there to Deuteronomy 1, I leave you with this to investigate. Whose idea was it to send spies? Was it that God said, Moses, send spies into the land because one of those accounts says that's the case? Or was it the people went to Moses and said, we want to send spies? Now, those two are not the same. Either God said, Moses, go tell the people to send spies, or the people said, Moses, go tell God we're going to send spies. Mm. Totally different. The Bible contains both. Here's, a, here's another example. Why was Moses not allowed to go into the promised land? Mm. One account tells us, that it is the the reason that he can't go in, this is the book of Numbers, is because remember when they struck the rock twice? Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't they didn't uh, sanctify God in the eyes of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, people speculate, well, maybe they shouldn't have struck the rock, but just spoke to it, whatever, whatever. But that's one account. But if you read in Deuteronomy four times, Moses makes reference in Deuteronomy as to why he's not going in the land. And you know what he doesn't say? He does not say that it was because he struck the rock. He says it was because of the people. Mm. That's why he couldn't go in. Now, That's both right. of those can't be right. So my my point in at least me summing this up, you can ask all the questions you want beyond that. But in in this particular story that we're telling tonight, Shapira takes another look at the scroll. And he recognizes that the scroll seems to conform in many ways with with what academics had determined would have been not all like you point out. But many of the difficulties are resolved by this manuscript. And he again becomes convinced that despite what Schlotman had said, that this represented an early uh, witness to the Moses document, the mm. the document that Moses wrote. So he makes a fresh transcription, Jonah. He does this process again. He's looking now with a more careful eye even than before. He documents everything, and he decides, okay, I'm going to Europe. So he prepares. Now, by the way, May the 9th, which is coming up this week, mm. uh, it's actually Mother's Day here in the state. Is it Mother's Day in Australia? Yeah, yeah Mother's Day in Australia, yeah. Okay, so let's just say Happy Mother's Day to yeah, all the go. mothers out there. And yeah. uh, so so he decides, it wasn't Mother's Day then, I don't think, but <laughs> he writes a letter to Professor Herman Strock yep. on May the 9th, it's dated, and he says, I'm going to surprise you with a very interesting thing here. And I have put a blog post up where I made uh, what I attempted to make a perfect transcription of the actual letter. Mm. During the process of writing the book and my continued research into this matter, uh, I have relied heavily on uh, what is an 82-page dossier that is contained in the British Museum. Uh, Christian David Ginsburg's widow uh, donated this collection of letters and newspaper clippings Mm -hmm. to the British Museum upon the death of her husband, the brilliant scholar, Masoretic scholar, Christian David Ginsburg. And in the British Museum, it's uh, it's called uh, Papers Relative to M.W. Shapira's Forged Manuscript of Deuteronomy, Hmm. A.D. 1883 to 1884, uh, that's the long title for the 82-page dossier. It's filled with all these letters, handwritten notes, mm. and I have copies of all of this. 
It's a it's known by Shapira aficionados by the term uh, ADD MS four one two nine four. Now I know some of our listeners are going to say I'm going to go find it. Well, good luck. <laughs> uh, but anyway, one of the letters contained in there is this May the ninth letter, and I want people to take the time to go on the blog and read the Shema article that that I, we mentioned, mm-hmm. as well as this letter. Uh, now, I didn't correct the grammar or the spelling, but before our listeners get too critical, remember this man knows like five languages. Yeah, His right. English isn't perfect, <laughs> but I if look, if he that's misspelled a word, I misspelled the word, but you can sound it out. You can figure out what he's saying. No, I'm just saying that he's using some vocabulary that I'm adding to mine. <laughs> so, I know it. I know it. It's not that yeah. bad. <laughs> so, uh, but in that, in that letter, it's 10 pages. And in that letter, he tells how he came upon the manuscript. He tells that he sent it to Schlopman. Schlopman rebuked him. He tells about putting it in the bank. Everything we've covered in this, I want people to read this and also to begin trying to understand the man Shapira and what it was he saw in this document. Because mm-hmm. Joan Ovandor, I think what we ought to do is begin to introduce people to the same things which caused you and I to begin to look deeper into the text for the authentic message of Moses. And I believe that we have found an ancient witness to that manuscript in the Moses scroll, which Moses Shapira came to possess in 1878. It was rejected, it was rejected, it was rejected, it is rejected even now, but with the Moses Scroll, as well as Harvard professor Don Dershowitz's work, uh, Yoram Sabo's work, Shlomo Gill's work, uh, Matthew Hamilton in Australia is the man on the planet. He's the man. Uh, but I'm telling you, I, th- I think that people will be fascinated. And even if they don't know so much about uh, this manuscript that Shapir came to possess, as you pointed out earlier in our program tonight, just becoming aware of some of these intricacies of the text mm. will make them a better student That's and right. cause them to look deeper into the eternal words of our Creator. There are oh, just so well put, really well put. I couldn't Austin. say it again. I don't know where I could say it. Again, so don't That's edit great. that out. No, I love it. And uh, that's a good place to leave it. So again, the uh, the website is themosesscroll.com, themosesscroll.com. Click on Author's Blog and you'll see the latest articles there. Definitely worth a read. And if you haven't got a copy of the book already, uh, you better get a copy because if it is what it claims to be, you ought to own one and you should be familiar with it. Uh, if you if you read through it and you find uh, objections as as to its claim, let us know because we would love to address those. We really, really would. Absolutely. And uh, and if you've already got the book and you like it, go to Amazon, leave a five star review, and uh, we'd love to read some of those out. That is all the time that we have, Ross. Thank you so much for coming back onto Truth to You. Uh, this has just been one of the most exciting things I've ever worked with, and I know you feel the same way. And we want to bring listeners on board so we'll be talking to you again dear listeners this time next week and until then have a great week have a beautiful week